grande que el templo. Si ustedes supieran lo que significa, lo que digo de ustedes es misericordia. Do not suppose I will come to bring peace, but not a sword. What is the most important quality for a revolutionary to possess? El amor. Love. Love. Love of humanity. Love of truth and justice. Love of the Father. A real revolutionary will die for love. All right, welcome to the revolution. It's Easter at Liquid Church. want to welcome you. Glad you're here in Morristown. want to say hello to our peeps in New Brunswick. Can we say hello to New Brunswick? Happy Easter, guys. Good to have you with us. Awesome. If you're listening online or in podcast, man, we're just gl really glad you're here uh, today. We're talking about a revolution, not the one that uh, John Lennon sang about, but rather revolution is a perfect theme for talking about the message and the mission of Jesus of Nazareth. It's really an interesting thing because when we think about that, he really turned the world upside down during his brief tenure on earth. I mean, the guy died young. He, he was in his 30s when he died a very violent death, and it's very different from leaders of other world religions who died in their old age and, you know, comfortable in their beds. In contrast, Jesus died a revolutionary, in other words, at the hands of the state. When you think about it, he was executed by the government, which was Rome at the time. And as we're going to see, Jesus was not only executed by the government, but with the, the approval and the encouragement of the religious establishment. In other words, church people said, <coughs> they saw him as a threat to the system that they believed it was their job to preserve and protect, which is quite remarkable. Because if you ask, ask the average person on the street, say, why did Jesus come? They say, oh, easy. He came to found a new uh, religion. You know, that's what most people honestly think, but it's just the opposite. In other words, when you think about this, Jesus subverted the religious and political structures of his day to such a degree that both politics and religion agreed the guy's got to go. There's something so subversive about him, we've got to take his life or he'll bring down the whole thing. Jesus the revolutionary. Now, that's not typically how we see Jesus, is it? <laughs> I mean, even if you've never been in church before, I'm guessing there are a bunch of uh, CEOs with us today. You know what a CEO is? Christmas, Easter only. You come twice a year to church, and this is one of those days. Welcome, first off. We're glad that you are here. But whether you come every week or you like dip in a church you know, every once in a while, we all have this like cultural memory of Jesus as kind of this white guy in a choir robe with the flowing Miss Breck hair, right? Kind of amazing. Sometimes he'll have a lamb around his neck, and most times he's going like this. Ah! I don't know why he does that. He puts his hands out like that. Jesus, meek and mild, kind of surrounded by kids and butterflies, or whatever it is, you know, that you have in your head. And that's the Sunday school stereotype that most folks envision when they think of Christ. And to be sure, there were aspects of his character that embodied those qualities. But if that's your only image of Jesus, the stained glass kind of saint, we're going to shatter that a bit with this series. And I understand you may say, well, I, I don't know, Jesus, a revolutionary, though, that, that seems like maybe it's being dramatic. But let me ask you, is it possible that somewhere along the way, we have lost touch with the truly radical nature of Jesus' message. Let me give you a sample of his teaching from the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 10, Jesus is about to send his disciples out on a mission. Listen to his words. Listen to these words. He says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. I'm sorry, I don't know where that accent just came from. I just kind of <laughs> added that's not quite in the text. Uh, Jesus was Middle Eastern. 
He lived in a first century Palestine. He's actually probably speaking Aramaic. But I want you to imagine it's the 21st century. It's today. We're in Times Square. Imagine this. And a guy from the Middle East gets up and starts yelling these words through a bullhorn with an Arabic accent. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Um, if this is in Times Square, this is where you grab the kids and cross the street. Let's go, guys. So this is a little bit. This is not the family-friendly message you want to teach your teens at youth group, is it? It's not Sunday school friendly. But imagine as he talks, a crowd starts gathering, and he says ominously, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. My guess, this is where the cops come. Okay, because now this starts sounding disturbing and they're probably like he's making threats. He sounds like a radical. And so I want you to imagine the NYPD kind of starts snaking through the crowd and he says this. But when they arrest you, do not worry. All men will hate you because of me. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Again, Jesus spoke these words in Aramaic, and my guess is people in the first century felt about how you would feel if it was spoken today in a Middle Eastern accent, and that is uneasy, threatened. I mean, that kind of radical language seems to be some sort of call to arms. Is he like advocating some sort of like uprising or, or, or rebellion among his followers? Author Ben Witherington writes, it's no surprise in view of his teachings and actions that Jesus was crucified. What's surprising is that it did not happen sooner. So my question is, if we've missed how radical and revolutionary Jesus was, how did we get our picture of gentle Jesus? Have we missed something along the way? Have maybe we sanitized him through familiarity and kind of missed the really upside-down nature, this revolutionary message he gave his whole life to communicate? On Wednesday, we went to Times Square, crossroads of the world, to find out, was Jesus a peacemaker or a radical revolutionary? Here's what folks said. All right, hey, what's going on, Liquid Church? This is uh, Pastor Tom. I'm here with Pastor Mike. Say hi. What up? And uh, we are here on the streets of New York City. It's uh, close to Easter, and we are asking people a very important question, and that is, which Jesus do they identify with? The Jesus meek and mild or Jesus the uh, Rambo revolutionary guy? Which do you identify with more, the anarchy Jesus or the meek and mild Jesus? Uh, neither one of them, because that is not what Jesus looked like. What did he look like? More like an Arab man. Peaceful Jesus, anarchy Jesus. Peaceful Jesus. Why would people kill a peaceful Jesus? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with anarchy. Why is that? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm a rebel. What can I say? Peaceful. Peaceful. Peaceful, yeah. Peaceful Jesus, war Jesus. Uh, bueno, malo. Él es bueno, Jesucristo. Bueno, es el mundo entero bueno. Bueno, amen. Peaceful Jesus. Now, why is that, sir? Because Jesus is our Savior. So why did they kill our Savior? Why did they kill this peaceful Jesus? God for us. Do you think Jesus is more peaceful or revolutionary? What he did stand for did take down everything that was going down with the Roman Empire. Are you getting this? Are you getting this? Because this guy is actually making some sense here. Peaceful Jesus. Was Jesus a peaceful, meek and mild Jesus, or was he an anarchist, revolutionary rebel rouser? 
How's that? Everybody hated him. Both of them, because Jesus is Jesus. Uh, wait a second, am I really on TV? The peaceful, meek, and mild Jesus, or the revolutionary this Jesus? This one, yes! Why is that? Jesus is strong and he can do karate. You revolutionary! Why is that? Because we need a revolution today. Peace. Peaceful, and why is that? Oh, I just think of him as peace. Peaceful. Peaceful. No. Anarchy Jesus, peaceful Jesus. Which are you? Peaceful. <laughs> peaceful. Revolutionary, and why is that? I think because his views were revolutionary at this time. The peaceful one. Peaceful one. And, and why is that? That's what I know. That's what I grew up with. That's a traditional. He looks like he's ready to raise hell. What would you say? Jesus the peacemaker or the revolutionary who literally raised hell? It really depends on who you ask. And the irony is this. History has shown over the centuries that people hijack Jesus for all sorts of agendas, religious, political. This is a fun picture of Republican Jesus we came across, uh, holding a machine gun, little dollar button sign there. You can see the oil rigs down there and everything, amazing. And, and Democrats would look at that, and of course, and they would cry, no, 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 that's all wrong. Jesus was a pacifist. He was for the poor. He would have voted for health care. That's not him. You know, that's the huge, whoa, touchy subject. Wow, you're right, easy there. It's amazing. From the beginning of time, Jesus has been used to champion everything from communism to consumerism, from pacifism to war. And the human tendency is to adopt Jesus to fit our own agenda rather than submit our lives to his subversive message. And there's a reason for that. Regardless of where you are coming from, you have to admit no person in history has come close to impacting the course of humanity than Jesus has. I mean, more books have been written about him than any other person or historical personage in recorded history. In fact, if you think about it, if, you know, if you believe in Christ or not, he literally divided history. Our calendars are divided between B.C., before Christ, and A.D., which is Latin for Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. It's literally our calendars divided. And it's kind of crazy when you consider he never wrote a book or had a blog, imagine this, he never ran for public office or led a violent revolt. He was literally executed a common criminal at the age of 33. We only have three years, three years of his life in recorded written history. Very brief. But the change he brought about was truly revolutionary. It's why we're here today. It's why we're in a Christian church on Easter. We're celebrating something that changed the world because no other leader ever claimed to be God in the flesh was executed by the state but lived to tell about it three days later. Jesus' message, a brand new life, is possible. Through faith in me, I will reconnect you to God, was truly revolutionary in its first century context. It turned the world upside down from politics to religion to relationships in ways that I think we vaguely understand. And what we're going to do today is just look at the core of Jesus' revolutionary message, and then what we'll do in the weeks to come, we're going to look at the politics of Jesus. We'll actually take a, a look at what his message did in, in, the, in the political context of the time. And then we'll look at the radical spirituality of Jesus. Notice I didn't say religion. See, again, most folks make the mistake of assuming Jesus came to found a new religion, but he didn't. The truth is, he came to dismantle it altogether. Albert Nolan puts it this way. He said, Jesus was not busy with a religious revival. He was busy with a revolution, a revolution in religion, in politics, and in everything else. So the question is, what is the nature of this revolution that Jesus came to establish, gave his life for, and more, what relevance does it have for us today? I mean, we think about it, right? Work, your marriage, relationships, school, sex, whatever that is. How does that apply in the 21st century culture? 
Well, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to understand a few things about revolution. Who here actually, revolutions, I should say plural, because we've seen a lot of them. Who here uh, studies history or business or politics? You kind of watch over that stuff. You know, over the last few uh, decades, we've had a number of revolutions. That's what they call it. Uh, like we had in the 60s, we had the, uh, the sexual revolution. What other kind of revolutions have we had? We've had a political one, right? We've had, you know, the, the conservative resurgence in the 80s and 90s. We've had economic revolutions, right? Kind of open up the free markets, all that kind of stuff. We've had all sorts of revolutions. And when you think about it, the problem... Oh, yeah, some of you are like, yeah, revolution today, Tea Party movement, political revolution. The problem is this. The word revolution literally means to revolve. That is, go in a circle, if you, if you take revolution at its main meaning, it means you're starting here with something and you want to change, and so you start going this way, but eventually you come all the way where? Back to the beginning. It's cyclical. It's a revolution. You're catching this. David Brooks, he's a columnist for the New York Times, he wrote an article recently called The Broken Society in which he listed all these various revolutions we've seen in recent years, and he noted, without exception... Almost every revolution, while it starts out promising something brand new, hope, we change you can believe in, it eventually failed to deliver on all the bright dreams that it promised. Take, for instance, um, let's take the sexual revolution, right? So in the 60s, it was like, culture and society is too conservative. We've got to overturn it. And sure enough, in the 60s, they overturned you know, conservative morals and manners and everything. But if you've noticed, if you watched, it has not produced this flowering of freedom as we've expected. Instead, it actually weakened families. It increased out-of-wedlock births. Today we have more fatherless families, more divorce, more abortion than ever before. So in an ironic twist, the love revolution took us all the way around and left us with a whole new set of problems in a society that was more loveless than ever before. Now you're saying, well, don't pick on the liberals. Let's go conservatives. Okay, conservatives have their own issues. Economic revolution. If you're a business person, you're a capitalist, awesome, great. Okay, take the free market revolution, right? The whole idea is we're going to create a competitive culture. We're going to allow companies to compete. That sounds good. The good ones arise to the top of what has happened. Giant chains like Walmart have gobbled up the local shop owners. Small banks taken over by massive multinational conglomerations thousands of miles away who have no problem, you know, giving off troubled assets. That helped fuel the recession. And so think about this ironic twist in the free market. What was supposed to bring about this decentralized competitive economy now has created businesses that are too big to fail, and we have to increase the size of government to bail them out if they do. It's an amazing irony. All of a sudden, we're started out revolving is back here with a whole set of problems. And, and, and you realize the point is, man-made revolutions are short-lived. By definition, they revolve or do a, do it, think of it this way, they always are doomed to do a 360. They start out promising, saying, radical change. But eventually they come full circle. Which is why people today are so cynical. Because they look at something like health care and say, ah, oh, we've seen this before. It's just history repeating. Now, this is not the kind of revolution Jesus had in mind. One that takes people in circles. He used a different R word to refer to the kind of revolution he was bringing. And that R word that he used was the word repent, which means to rethink everything that you think you know about life. Matthew 4.17 reads this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, what's the word? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This word repent literally means to start here 
and you begin going in the opposite direction because of a new truth that you've learned that changes everything you previously know. And you don't end up doing a 360, you end up doing a 180 and live differently. And things change. Repent, that's what it literally means. We think it means, oh, repent of your sins. It means literally to rethink reality from a new perspective. Because you have this truth that has changes everything at this fundamental level, and you're just like, man, i got to do something different. Maybe the problem is not the system. Maybe it's me. i got to rethink my approach to life, because based on this new message, I'm going to go in a brand new direction. And Jesus says, that's what I want to do. He said, I want to I, I start a revolution that transcends systems, politics, religion, economics, Though it includes all of those, it will affect that. Instead, I'm inviting people everywhere to repent, rethink what they thought they knew about life in this broken world in light of a brand new reality. And what's the new reality called? What's the phrase here? It says, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Now, here's the deal. This word kingdom comes from the Greek word basileia, which means government. And some of you are like, oh, see, it's government. It's that kind of thing. No. <laughs> kingdom literally means a realm where the king dominates. Whatever the leader says goes. Do you see how we get that word here? King dominates. Kingdom. This is wherever the leader dominates. And, and, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. That's, that sounds like a dictatorship. And Jesus says, no, not exactly. I've come to free you, not from this, from yourselves. And I'm going to about to show you that the quickest way to freedom is by dying. If you're willing to lose your life, you'll find it. See, most secular revolutions, they cry, power to the people. The system is the problem. But Jesus was bold enough to ask, what if people are the problem? And people are like, what? See, typically, you guys know this, especially right now if you're political or you're dialed into that kind of thing. When people look at a world that's broken, a system that's broken, they turn to one of two channels. They typically turn to politics or, you're in a church, religion. Sometimes they mix the two. Imagine that. And, uh, and, and, and that's a powerful thing because not only is our agenda right, it's righteous. What we're doing, what God would do if he was in power. And, you know, you may say, well, no, that's good. We have you know, Think about this. It's a dangerous combo because if, if religion dictates your politics, what happens if, if your religion tells you that it's God's will to overthrow the system by flying a plane into a building? Now you've got a problem. That's the 21st century. But in the first century, it wasn't that much different. If you asked any Jew living in Jesus' day, what's the problem with the world today? They would say, that's easy, Rome. Caesar, he's the problem. Rome is oppressive. They tax us, they stifle our freedom, they mistreat us. If we could just overthrow Rome, that'll fix things. And Jesus said, hmm, interesting, repent. Think a brand new thought. What if Caesar, the government of Rome, isn't your problem, but your response to him is? See, the religious leaders thought the solution was to set up a literal kingdom in God's name, kind of like a theocracy. Luke 17 says this. It says, once, uh, having been asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is where? Let's say it together, is within you. So in other words, all of a sudden, Jesus says, maybe the kingdom is actually internal. Maybe it's not an external system that we have to overthrow through violent revolution or just voting or whatever it is, but maybe it's inside of you. Maybe it's something that you can't see. In other words, maybe the revolution is spiritual first. 
And once you get at the spiritual revolution inside the heart of every man, you'll realize the limits of laws and legislation are always trumped by radical love. My revolution starts from the inside out, not the outside in. As you surrender more and more of your life to a new king, King Jesus, it's a kingdom revolution. As he dominates your life, you change. And guess what? As you change, the world changes. Isn't that a novel idea? We all say we want to change the world. And Jesus is like, awesome, what if we start with you? <laughs> oh, easy. <laughs> a revolution of one, and it's genius. Because all of a sudden, this revolution doesn't become institutionalized. It spreads virally from one person to the rest. Again, this was 2,000 years ago. We are sitting here in a room full of people today, many of whom, if you look around, have had their lives changed in some way by this message of radical love. Now, let's make this personal because it is. Take your life, your Monday morning life, okay? If you take a look at this and you say, what part of your life feels stuck in a revolution? I don't mean the good kind. Meaning, you want it to change, but it always seems you end up in the same old spot. What aspects would those be? Let's say uh, your relationship. Maybe your marriage feels stuck. Or maybe you're single and you're like, I don't know what it is. I keep making the same mistakes over and over again. I end up in the same spot as it always is. Maybe you feel stuck in work. Your job, your career is going nowhere. Maybe you feel stuck financially. Tim, I don't know what it is. I've never been out of debt, and I try and try, and I scrape and save, and then all of a sudden I'm back where I started. I, just, I need an economic revolution. Or maybe you have some, uh, some habits or addictions that feel like, you know, I've tried to get freedom, Tim. I, wanna, I want a revolution in my life, but every time, you know, I get sober or all of a sudden these things start creeping, and I end up in the back, the same spot. I've had moments of freedom, but quite honestly, I would love to repent and rethink the whole thing. <laughs> How do you tell me? How do you go in a different direction for good? How does this just not go circular like so much of life? Let me show you how this works. <laughs> Rather, let me, let me let Jesus just demonstrate this to you from one of his most radical teachings called the Beatitudes. It's like this subversive manifesto. If you take your Bible, turn to Matthew 5. This is amazing. We get real practical here. Jesus gives us a picture of what it would look like in normal life to live a revolution. That is, you're dwelling in this world, but you're actually living in the kingdom of God. Jesus says this in verse 38. He says, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. He's like, that's the mantra of human revolutions. We all know this, right? Someone tries to grab power. Whoop! You got to grab it back. That's, that's how that works. Someone attacks you, you counterattack. You see this all the time in politics. I kind of love following like, the conflict in the Middle East. It's just kind of fascinating. It's been going on for thousands of years, and they're still at where? Same spot. Why? Israel builds settlements. Hamas lobs a bomb. Hamas lobs a bomb. Israel bulldozes their houses. Action, reaction. You do this. I do that. Over and over it goes, and where it stops, nobody knows. It's always a never-ending revolution or cycle. That's a political example. But it works the same way in relationships, doesn't it? Someone wrongs you. You take offense, and you retaliate. You're going to do that? How do you like this? Mm. Right? You, you try to hold your ground. And Jesus says, look, we all know the rules of this. We know how this goes. We struggle over, and get, we get caught in this tit-for-tat living. Now watch this in verse 39. Look what he says. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, this is 
This is truly subversive teaching. You have to understand how this works in real life. So I need a volunteer from the audience. Who want, can I have a volunteer right there? Greg Forrest, I see it right there. Come on, give Greg a hand. Come on up, Greg. Come on, come on, come on. Live volunteer, awesome. Come on, come on. Let's go. I wanted, I want, come on up, just right on up here, Greg. I want Greg, what up, Greg? How are you? What's up? Awesome, good to see you. Greg is from Basking Ridge? No, Roselle Park. Roselle Park, let's try that. Give Roselle Park a hand. Awesome, Roselle Park, thank you for being up here, Greg. Now here's the, are you ready to do this? Whatever. Okay. <laughs> I, we didn't play, play on this because no, I, want, I wanted him to come up here so I can illustrate to you how verse 39 works, all right? Look at verse 39. If someone strikes you on the right cheek. You're going to hit me now. Turn to him the other also. You ready for this? You're like, why did I raise my hand? Uh, here's how we do this. Now, so, so in other words, Jesus says, okay, we, let's just act this out, right? Jesus says, someone slaps you, so get ready. You're going to slap me? Get ready. Let's see what you're going to do. Yeah, exactly. Grace. I am. I'm in charge up here. If I'm getting ready to slap Greg, I'm going to go, no, what? Now, just wait a minute. Hold on. What did Jesus say? He said, if someone strikes you on the which cheek? The right cheek. Right cheek. So this is, this is your right cheek. And if I were going to hit you on the right cheek, now, that's your right cheek. Sorry, that's his right cheek. If I'm gonna, this is weird because I'm right-handed and it's hard to get at him. In fact, now check this out. In the first century, if you were left-handed, it was considered uh, a birth defect. Sorry, lefties. It was considered demonic. Parents, Roman parents, they would train their children if they skewed lefty to be a righty. So what that means is, what's it presumed, is I'm going to hit you with my right hand, but I'm hitting him on the right cheek. So that means what kind of strike is it? I am going to... It's a backhand. It is a Roman soldier saying... <laughs> Stupid Jewish peasant. It is a master saying, stupid slave. It is going, you moron, you fool. You. This is kind of fun. This, this, is good. this is good stuff here, Greg. I appreciate this. It, is, it, it literally, it's, it's a backhanded slap. And that's what Jesus says. Have you ever received a backhanded compliment? That's where this comes from. That's, that's literally where we got the phrase backhand. Greg is like, am I done here? <laughs> Stay up here for just a minute. Now think about this. When you have received a backhanded slap, at work, in your relationship. It's someone saying, you know what? You're not even worth fighting. You're like down here. I'm over you. I'm more powerful. You fool, you moron. And Jesus says, when someone does this to you, I want you to do what? I want you to turn the other cheek and basically say, hit me again, but this time slap me like a man. Don't you dismiss me. I'm going to make myself vulnerable again. But don't you dismiss me. You're going to have to confront my humanity. Go ahead. Are you ready for the second? No, I'm not going to do that. Give Greg a hand. Thank you for that, Greg. Appreciate that. Good job. Appreciate that. Jesus says, he doesn't, he's not saying let yourself get slapped around. He's saying when someone hurts you, when someone dismisses you, when someone confronts you in life, what if you actually, instead of striking back, said, that hurts. But if you're going to do it again, treat me like a human being. All of a sudden, their whole power identity is, 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 is challenged. This is very subversive because you're basically confronting that person by making yourself vulnerable, but you're doing it in a nonviolent way that challenges everything they thought they knew about who you were. Jesus is not saying let yourself get slapped around. You've got to hear this. Rather, when someone in your life hurts you, Jesus would say, what if you don't confront them with violence? Yeah, you're going to do this. I'm going to do it. But vulnerability. Go ahead. That hurt me, and you can hurt me again. This time, treat me like a man. And this was revolutionary in Jesus' day, where masters slapped around slaves all the time. The Romans slapped around the Jews. What's it mean for us? Let me give you an application to men. Let's say you're married, and you have a critical spouse. 
But next time, she gives you a backhanded compliment instead of lashing back. You don't retaliate with a barb of your own. And instead, you actually say, you know, that hurt me. And as a man, as your, as your husband, it hurts me when you say those things. That hurts. But I won't leave. I won't retreat. That's what men do when they're hurt. They go in, we get real quiet, we storm away and plot our revenge. <laughs> I, I understand, I understand. Guys, guys, I get this. When you get hurt by a woman, she rejects you. You're tempted eye for eye. I'll show her. You nurse the grudge, and you're like, I'm going to get her in a weak spot. And of course, what happens? The cycle continues, and round and round it goes, and where it stops, nobody knows. And when we have a problem in a relationship, typically we say, well, the other person needs to change. But Jesus says, what if the revolution in your relationship began with repentance in your life? What if to change the other person, you had to change first? How's that feel? Oof. What? Now you see why they killed him? The, some of you are like, Jesus was never married, man. That's just like a, the degree to which you're willing to show grace and make yourself vulnerable. He says, that's, the, that's, that's actually how you give peace a chance. See, this is, this is about subversive peacemaking. Sometimes we think pacifist is a dirty word. Because we hear pacifist, we think, oh, that means being passive. There are, like, there are people in the world who are actively confronting power. They're fighting force with force. And then there are pacifists who just kind of run away and hide. But pacifist doesn't mean run away and hide. It comes from the word pacify, which means you bring peace in an active, creative way with force. Think about that. You don't run away from the situation. You actually run into the conflict with a subversive, creative response that all of a sudden it drains it of this hostility and restores humanity. Peacemaking is a subversive act. That's kingdom illustration number one. I want to show you the second that Jesus gives us. Look what he says next. He says, And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. I need another volunteer. This one's going to involve disrobing. Who is, uh, is that? No, no, just stop. We're not going to do public nudity tonight. In that culture, people wore two articles of clothing. In other words, your tunic or your undergarment, and then you had your outer cloak. And Jesus says, let's say your conflict is with a very petty person who is so intent on dominating you, they want to basically steal your underwear. That's what this is. He's like, let's, let's, say, let's say your marriage goes from, from worse to, to, to even worse, and, and you're moving towards divorce, and the papers are being drawn, and it gets from, from bad to worse, so bad between the two of you, it gets so personal, it's like, I'm keeping the house, no, I'm getting the car, I want the TV, I want the espresso maker, and you're back and forth and back and forth battling, okay? We laugh, but this, this happens all the time in litigious culture. I don't know if you saw the story of the Long Island surgeon who sued his wife for the kidney he donated to her. Did you see this? It made national news. Early in their marriage, he gave his kidney to save his wife's life, but as they went through a very nasty divorce, he demanded it back. It's crazy. This is not Jerry Springer. This is a well-respected surgeon. It made national headlines. So Jesus is like, imagine your relationship has gotten so rancorous that the other person sues for their rights. And instead of getting a lawyer, you step into the kingdom and say, okay, here's my tunic. Now I want you to take my cloak too. Take it all. What? Yeah. If you want it so bad, and you think you need to muscle me to get what you're after, you must really need it. So go ahead and take what you need, whatever, whatever you think's fair. What would happen? As they try to, to, to throttle you legally, 
you respond with the radical kindness of grace, which doesn't just forgive an offense, but blesses your enemy with lavish generosity, the way Christ died for his enemies on the cross. The picture Jesus is saying is, what if, what if you got naked again? What if you got vulnerable again? You didn't respond with violence, but vulnerability. Do you see this? This is subversive love. Dude, so what are you going to do? She demanded the house. So what would you do? I gave her the car too. All of a sudden you realize radical grace is the only thing that could possibly break the cycle and cut it off and move to a holistic change that changes everything in your life. Because that tit-for-tat cycle of revenge gets interrupted and maybe reconciliation, maybe, just a ray of it breaks through. Not all at once, but that's how the revolution begins. There was a news story that I, about a New Yorker uh, named Julio Diaz who did this. Uh, every night, Mr. Diaz took uh, the train, the subway train home for, to the Bronx where he lived, and after work, he would go to his favorite diner to eat. I don't know if you saw this. It was on NPR. And as Diaz stepped off the number six train onto an empty platform one night, a teenage kid jumped out in front of him, pulled a knife on him, and said, give me your wallet. Diaz gave his wallet, but as the kid walked away, he called after him. He said, hey, wait a minute. You forgot something. And the kid was like, what are you talking about? He goes, take my watch. Don't you want my watch? And the kid thought it was a trick. He said, I'm serious. It's really cold. He said, here, take my coat. And the kid came walking back, and he took the watch, and he took, he took the coat. He said, what are you doing? And he said, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a couple of bucks, I guess you must really need the money. And it's cold tonight, so I figured you probably need the coat too. You're probably hungry. Let's, I'm going to dinner. I don't know if you're welcome to join me, though, okay? And at first, the kid couldn't believe it, but he actually went with Diaz, and they sat in a diner booth together, and as a waitress and the staff who knew him, because he'd come in every other night, they said, oh, this is my new friend. I'm, what's your name? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and as they ate, the kid just said, why are you like this? Why are you so nice to people? And he said, well, I, I follow, you know, the great commandment. You do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And the kid said, I didn't think people actually ever did that. And then the bill came. And, <laughs> and Diaz said, well, I would love to treat you to dinner. Talk about an awkward moment. <laughs> but you have my wallet. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. And he pushed the wallet across the table, and Diaz said, absolutely. He said, listen, w one other thing, I just I have to ask. I just want my wallet back. Can I have your knife, too? And the kid literally said, never had anyone do this for me. And he put his knife on the table and sent it across the diner table. A mugger gets mugged by radical grace. By verse, when, when offended, not only forgiving someone, but responding with radical love, it stops it in the tracks and gives the chance of changing your enemy forever. Folks, this is why Jesus' revolution went viral. Because the early believers didn't trust Jesus just for heaven. Oh, when we get to heaven, it'll be all great. They lived and they loved in his footsteps on earth. And I understand, it doesn't change everything all at once. But enough people responding with radical, counter-cultural love when it's least expected, you have the start of a revolution on your hands. You, you understand this? See, true revolutions never begin with violence, but vulnerability. We all know the iconic picture of the revolution from Tiananmen Square. You ever see this? 
the student protesters in Beijing, where a single Chinese student faced down a tank and said, I am willing to make myself vulnerable and confront your abuse of power with my fragile humanity. This is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Think about it, folks. Jesus changed the world with a revolution, and he never fired a shot. Revolutions begin with vulnerability, not violence. All it takes is one man, one woman willing to die for love to bring the whole system down. Have you ever wondered why the cross is the symbol of Christianity? It's kind of nuts if you think about it. In the first century, the cross was a Roman execution device. So some of you wear crosses on, on your necklace, right? It would be the equivalent of you walking around with a little electric chair around your neck. And people saying, what's the deal with that? Oh, <laughs> our leader suffered capital punishment. And it's a reminder for me to give my life for the revolution too. And people would be like, that is weird. What are you talking about? Jesus, with his death on the cross, made the ultimate subversive sacrifice that changed the world forever. As his political and his religious enemies jeered, oh, yeah, save yourself. He looks down from the cross, and what did he say? To hell with you? No, he prayed. He said, Father, forgive them. He forgave them. He blessed them. He saved them. He forgave you. He blessed you. He saved you. And now he says, go and do likewise. Ransom other people with my revolution. And so, when Jesus did that, he didn't just conquer his enemies. He won their hearts through love. That's the revolution. That's the revolution that continues today. And all of a sudden, his cryptic words begin to make sense. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Will find it. Jesus' invitation was not to overthrow a system, but to overthrow ourselves so we could put a final end to the cycle and bring lasting change to a broken world. And it starts with one. Let me ask, as you think about this, how does all of this strike you? Because I see some of you nodding, and I think some of you just going like, what? That is so Im- that's, that is, that's idealistic, first off. That will never work in the real world. <laughs> That's totally impractical. Or is it strangely beautiful to some of you? Is it totally unsettling and attractive at the same time? What if this spring you joined the revolution and literally began experimenting, working Jesus' teaching into your life? Is it possible, just possible, it could revolutionize some areas of your life where you're stuck, going in circles over and over? Is it possible it could revolutionize your relationships, the way you treat your partner, the way you treat your kids, the way your coworkers, your strangers you meet? Or are you content to stay stuck in a secular revolution where you think, well, you know, it's the external circumstances, we just got to, you know, and you make superficial changes, but it never changes. Or maybe is it time to repent? That is, rethink everything you thought you knew and begin going in a brand new direction, a risky direction. Revolutionaries are risky. Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of God is where? It's within you. This spring, there are signs of revolution all over our church. It's very exciting to me. There's a guy in one of our services who um, literally talk about a revolution. He had uh, been addicted for almost 15 years, had committed several crimes, incarcerated. This day, today, he is graduating two years of sobriety. That's an amazing thing, two years of that. 
He, he belongs to one of our life groups. It's very exciting. He actually made restitution for his crimes. He came to us. He said, you know, I'm kind of on the lamb. I don't want to face what I have to do. And he actually took a step and said, Jeff, what, what if we did this together? And he actually, and he actually took that step and was met with tremendous grace. Revolution. In the last couple of weeks, we've had over a dozen people repent, meaning they're rethinking what they thought life was about and going in God's direction. They're trusting Jesus. The newly saved included one woman who had had a string of uh, bad relationships. She actually had uh, two abortions in the last four years. And she said to me, she was crying because she said, Tim, I have a hard time believing Jesus accepts me as I am once and for all. I have a hard time with that. Radical grace changes you. (laughs) She couldn't believe that any man could ever accept her the way Jesus did. And as a consequence, she's repenting. She's rethinking why she spent most of her life going with men who only used and abused her. She's, she's thinking, rethinking everything. You get this? That's what it means to repent. You're doing a 180 to your old life and inviting the life of Christ to take root in you and it's the promise of a brand new beginning. That's the power of grace. So my hope is this spring you're going to join the revolution as many people in our church are doing. How do you do it? You pray as Jesus taught us to pray. I pray for your kingdom come. Your will be done in earth in my life as it is in heaven. I want heaven down in here and I want to start living differently. You pray for the kingdom to come, for the king to dominate your heart with his power and his grace. The revolution begins on the inside. I've seen signs in Times Square, repent, the end's near. No. Repent, a brand new beginning is possible. I want to close with a picture that shows the revolution at work in lives today. But before I do that, let's pray together, okay? Father, we're grateful um, that you did not come to start a religion, but you literally obliterated the one that was there and introduced a new, a new reality, a new covenant called the kingdom of God, and that we are acceptable to you through grace. Thank you for not just conquering your enemies, but winning our hearts through love on the cross. We celebrate your life today, Jesus. You rose from the dead, and you are still alive, and you are still changing lives today. And so we thank you for your amazing grace. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you.